our prayer this morning. God of all mercy, who weeps with us as we anguish over lives broken and lost to the violence which so pains our community, open our ears that we might hear their cries, open our eyes that we might see their fears, open our hearts that we might embrace them in love, and open our arms that we might protect them from all harm. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, Amen. that we're going to go through over the course of the next several months really grew out of a conversation begun initially with Bishop Smith in the Diocese of Missouri and extended in the midst of a fellowship at the University of the South at Swanee. What we recognize together is that there are very few resources that enable adults within communities of faith to engage violence in evidence-based, data-driven way to talk about it in its many different shapes and forms. Towards that end, we have several objectives for today's conversation. First, that we examine the way in which violence has evolved in different contexts and the way in which violence is expressed in scripture. Secondly, to explore the historical and theological implications of various concepts of violence as they're related in scripture. And finally, perhaps most importantly, to develop a perspective on the manner in which the gospel of Jesus shapes our understanding of violence as it's portrayed in scripture. Now perhaps some of us might think that this is a relatively academic exercise and we really don't need to engage in it. After all, we're people of faith. We're people of the good book. But contrary to what Mike preached in his sermon earlier today. There will be pulpits this morning in the United States where preachers will claim that the massacre of 11 Jews in Pittsburgh was a result of God's justice. The fact that they hadn't converted. That they were God's chosen people but hadn't accepted God in the presence of Jesus Christ. There will be others perhaps gathered in settings like ours who will simply write off this tragedy just as they would the threatened bombing of political leaders as just another sign that God is violent and created a violent world. We need to address that. The Roman Catholic biblical scholar Luke Timothy Johnson, who teaches at Emory University in Atlanta, has made the observation that we have to take scripture for what it says. We can interpret it, we can contextualize it, but we can't change what it says, so we have to deal with it. And that's what we're going to be about this morning, dealing with what Scripture says about violence and also about love and peace, and then trying to weave together some semblance of understanding that might make sense for us as Christians. 
There are a number of passages that we could consider, and I offer for your reflection uh, uh, in the privacy of your own home. They would include certainly the first uh, and second chapters of Genesis, where God talks about the nature of creation being fundamentally good. So we're led to believe from the very beginning that this is good stuff out there, that God didn't make evil, God didn't create violence. But then we rather quickly move to the 20th chapter of Deuteronomy, where in fact Israel is portrayed as a conqueror of land and a violent and vicious conqueror at that. In fact, so vicious that there are some scholars who attribute to ancient Israel crimes that today we would call war crimes. Psalm 137 speaks of violent retribution. This is the psalm that talks about hammering enemies' babies against rocks. Hard to find a more violent image. And yet we turn then to the New Testament where we're greeted with the love and beauty of the Beatitudes. A God of peacemaking, a God of mercy, a God of the poor. This is all scripture. This is all inspired word. This is all God's spirit moving among his people. The question for us is how today do we make sense out of all of this? Rather than trying to read through all the various passages that we have, I've made a copy of piece from Deuteronomy and would like to share it with you just so you get an idea of the nature and the intensity of the language of violence that occurs throughout Scripture. When you draw near to a town to fight against it, offer it terms of peace. If it accepts your terms of peace and surrenders to you, then all the people in it shall serve you at forced labor. If it does not submit to you peacefully but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. You may, however, take as your booty the women, the children, livestock, and everything else in the town, all its spoil. You may enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Thus you shall treat all the towns that are very far from you, which are not towns of the nations here. But as for the towns of these people that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, you must not let anything that breathes remain alive. You shall annihilate them, the Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God has commanded, so that they may not teach you to do all the abhorrent things that they do for their gods, and you thus sin against the Lord your God. If you besiege a town for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you must not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. Although you may take food from them, you must not cut them down. Are trees in the field human beings, that they should come under siege from you? You may destroy only the trees that you know do not produce fruit. You may cut them down for use in building siege works against the town that makes war with you, until it falls. Here we have, on the authority of God, God suggesting that there are trees that are more important in creation than human beings. Preserve those trees that produce fruit and harvest it. And if the trees don't produce fruit, and use them to build seed works, siege works, to build those 
weapons of destruction and war that can be used against those towns. Truly a God who minces no words. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is a rather scorched earth policy, and we'll revisit this again under the concept of the ban. The narrative in Hebrew scriptures is replete with violence. We have every right to ask, how is it that this community of faith, we people of Christian peace, inherit such a tradition of violence after all? It's the God of the Hebrew Scriptures who destroys the entire world because he's so angry in the midst of a flood. It's the God of the Hebrew Scriptures who launches down fire and lightning and total destruction in Sodom and Gomorrah for their disbelief and depravity. Drowns Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. Just doesn't turn them away. Doesn't simply put the water out there to block their progress against the fleeing Israelites, he drowns them. This is the same God who seemingly sits by uh, and watches uh, Cain murder Abel, watches the rape of Tamar and the conquest of Canaan. Violence is not an accident in the Hebrew scriptures. Nor is it an accident in the New Testament. In fact, Matthew's story uh, of Jesus' birth, as well as Luke's, begins relatively early in the narrative with the slaughter of innocence. Herod, being so concerned about this messianic king being born in Bethlehem, that he orders all the males within the kingdom under the age of two to be murdered. So we begin this New Testament of Jesus Christ in the midst not just of peace and love and angels singing in the skies, but of slaughter. We learn very early on in the Gospels of the beheading of John the Baptist being served up on a platter. The Acts of the Apostles following Jesus' resurrection continues with the stoning death of Stephen, the beginning of a long line of martyrs throughout Christian history. Even Jesus himself was not immune to acts of violence as he walks in, is shocked by what he sees in the temple and overturns the money changers' tables. That's pretty mild compared to these other things. <laughs> what? I said, that's pretty mild compared to these other things. Indeed, but then, absolutely, but indeed, perhaps the mark of violence in New Testament scripture is the crucifixion itself. Not just the gory nature of that type of death, but the fact that this was the Son of God being put to death. A man who had done nothing to merit this. A man whose death was given instead of that of a common thief and robber, Barabbas. Now, balancing this God of presumed violence, or rather the violence we presume to associate with this God, we're also confronted with a God of mercy in both Testaments, both in the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament. 
Remember, it's God who intervenes and keeps Abraham from sacrificing his son Isaac. It's God who rescues Joseph through the actions of one of his brothers and saves him from being murdered. It's Jesus himself who intervenes with Peter after he slices off the guard's ear but keeps him from thrusting the sword through him. It's the same Jesus who teaches us to love our enemies. And many appropriately have suggested, despite the horrific nature of the crucifixion, the greatest act of compassion is mercy, is manifest in the resurrection of Jesus. So what we have is a rather complex picture beginning to emerge in Scripture. If we look at it all and take it all as Luke Timothy Johnson suggests, at face value, and attempt to put it into context, we're left with a real challenge. So what are the contexts in which we begin to understand the violence that clearly is there? My point being, to assert that there is not violence in the Bible or this is simply an historic tradition or authors taking liberty is wrong. Violence exists in the Bible. Violence exists at the hands of God, as does compassion and mercy. But how do we weave those themes together? It's not just the, our founding literature, not just scripture, that informs us about the nature of violence. It's our traditions that emanate out of scripture. For example, in the common era, post-Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, in Jewish history we have uh, a series of revolts against the Seleucid and the Roman empires. So Jews were actu actively engaged in violent overthrow of repressive governments. Internal conflicts about religious practices and messianic expectations uh, led to constant conflict, oftentimes physical conflict, in Jewish communities throughout the ancient Near East. Responses throughout uh, the past 2,000 years as Jews have been oppressed in various countries in various settings have caused them at times to appropriately revolt and respond in violence for the preservation of their own lives and for the preservation of faith as they understand it. And we'd be remiss if we didn't also uh, make the observation that uh, the state of Israel, a Jewish state, remains engaged in conflict now 70 years after its formation. So the history of Judaism in the Hebrew scriptures and throughout its tradition has significant examples of violence associated with the practice of that faith. Okay. But so do we Christians. The New Testament and much of the Old Testament informs our tradition every bit as well. Christians in the first three centuries were regularly persecuted at the hands of Rome, dying deaths every bit as violent and sometimes worse than Jesus' own. We see in uh, the uh, time of the early church fathers, the beginning development of a theological perspective on the nature of combat and war, attributed largely to Saints Augustine and uh, Aquinas, uh, who frame the nature of a war. What does it take for God to be on our side if we're engaged in war? Three things. It takes legitimate authority, namely God, or God-constituted government in the presence of an, elected, of a, an emperor 
or a king. Second, a just cause. So you can't just go to war. It has to be war with a purpose, and the purpose has to be justifiable in the eyes of God. And last, it has to have the right intention. So this notion of booty, uh, of taking, uh, uh, going to war for access to uh, riches and wealth and women and children and slaves is not a right intention. Aquinas and uh, Augustine would argue, for example, going to war to overturn apartheid is a righteous cause, seeking the right intention. Okay? That, that rationale was used uh, throughout the Crusades as uh, Christian empires of the north invaded uh, the ancient Near East to reclaim Jerusalem. Certainly pervasive during the time of the Inquisition, the various forms of reformation in England as well as on the European continent, and heaven knows the European territorial wars, battles not only between Protestants and Catholics, but various different kinds of Protestants, and from time to time, various different kinds of Catholics, and always the subtext are those Jews made us do this. The world wars of the 20th century uh, grow out of this sense of righteous might and righteous indignation. Recall the speech of Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, on, the day after Pearl on the day after Pearl Harbor when he talks about the righteous might of our nation prevailing in battle. And the regional conflicts in which we and other nations are engaged today have often a Christian subtext to them a belief that we are doing the right thing, bringing democracy to the world, uh, as God would have us understand the nature of freedom. Among the most thoughtful interpretations of this sense of violence, this very confusing portrait that we see in scripture, it's a book written by Jerome F.D. Creech, uh, uh, Reverend Dr. Creech is a professor at seminary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, so especially apropos uh, for this morning. What he suggests is a very different orientation. What he tries to do is to provide the context that scripture doesn't precisely note. First of all, he reminds us of what is God's purpose in creation, which is why I suggested the first thing that we read is from the first chapter of Genesis. God created the world to be good. God did not create the world to be violent. God did not create the world to be at war. So if we're going to understand those passages of scripture that speak to it, we have to look at it through the, the glasses, if you will, the lenses of a God who wanted this world to be perfect in the first place. And second, pairing off of that, is God acts in defense and restoration of the perfect cosmic order. When we're looking at God being violent, when we're looking at a God who seemingly is angry or exhorting his people to display anger and violence, it's not for some uh, perverse notion. It's not to exercise demonic evil. It's God attempting either directly or by agency to restore something that approximates the cosmic order. Remember the story of the flood, and this is a very loose paraphrase, but as we get close to that encounter, 
God throws up his hands. He goes, I've tried so many different things. They've all failed. To heck with all of you. I'm wiping out the world. Well, he wipes out the world. Why? To restore the perfect cosmic order. To restore what it is that he had made. So as you think about various references to violence, think about those lenses. What was God doing in creation? And when we see violence, is there some godly purpose in terms of the order of the world that's attempting to be restored? Creech emboldens his argument by noting that the narrative of creation in the Hebrew scriptures differs from all of the other creation narratives in the ancient Near East. And those other narratives, whether it's Babylon or Syria or Assyria, those narratives involve the god of the country battling other gods. And ultimately, the god of the country, the god they worship. For example, Baal. Baal triumphs. And that is how creation is born. Recall now the, the, the Hebrew Scriptures version of creation. God opened his eyes and said, huh, I think we need light and dark. And created light and dark and said, this is really good. And he created all the things on the earth and said, hmm, this is really good. And then he created you and me and said, this is good too. There is no cosmic struggle. There's no battle between gods. So the creation of the world understood through Jewish eyes, understood therefore through Christian eyes, doesn't come out of violence, it comes out of joy, it comes out of happiness, it comes out of the attempt to create this perfect cosmic order. God creates, as I note, without doing battle. But what ultimately emerges is maintaining that perfect order, and hence we have the emergence of the warrior God, God going to do battle. What God does when God goes to do battle, whether directly or through God's people, is to use violence as a righteous tool in the hands of a righteous God used for a righteous purpose. So again, this is not God allowing God's people or anyone else to claim women and children or simply to engage in a scandalous murder. It's God acting with a righteous and noble purpose to recreate that sense of perfection that existed in the earliest days. He also, God also uses the concept of vengeance, not to retaliate. His motto is, don't get even, don't uh, get mad, get even. That's not God's motto. God's motto is to reinstate. If you're fallen away, if you've committed sin, if you've brought defamation on God's people, on God's creation. The intent of God, even God engaged in violence, is not to punish you. It's to reinstate you and your family and your world back into that cosmic order. Now, it may feel like punishment. This is sort of like our dad saying, you know, Mark, this is going to hurt me a lot more than it hurts you. <laughs> it's my dad trying to restore the perfect cosmic order of my family, Okay. That's how God is at work in this process, at least as Creech would have us understand it. Nevertheless, we still have to deal with the most horrendous of all the acts of violence in the Hebrew Scriptures, and I would argue, save for the crucifixion in all of Scripture. 
Technically, it's known uh, among biblical scholars as the ban. The ban is, for lack of a better description, what we read in Deuteronomy, this scorched earth policy. As you enter into Canaan, nothing living stands, and the only thing that should stand are those things which serve your purposes as my people. Period. No exceptions. No discussion. This seems to be ruthless. This seems to be the Holocaust on steroids. Okay. The purpose of the ban, however, is not, Creech would argue, the barbarous persecution, prosecution of a war, but rather the assertion of uh, the primacy of Israel's God. He's restoring the order. Looking out at this area of Canaan, and saying, they're worshiping false gods. That's not the creation I ordained. I need to restore legitimacy out of this chaos. And the only way to do it is to wipe them out. This is the flood, but not wiping out everybody, just the people of Canaan. Okay? The other perspective that Creech would suggest is to liberate people from the oppression of these false gods. If, if the gods aren't real, you can't kill the false gods, right? You can't go out and kill Zeus or Apollo. But if you want to get rid of the impression that their worship has, you may have to engage in violence against the people who claim them as their gods. Some subtle distinctions that are beginning to emerge. The New Testament struggles with violence in a different way, and that is around the crucifixion. Nature of atonement, understanding Jesus' death as sacrifice. The people look at us and say, how can you be a people of peace when you have a God who let his own son be killed and didn't lift a finger? So bad was it that Jesus on the cross is going, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Okay. Anselm of Canterbury, about a thousand uh, uh, years after the death of Christ, proffered uh, that Jesus died to repay God for our sins. It's often called substitutionary sacrifice. God died, to, Jesus died to pay for your sins and for mine. We even have some of that language in our prayers, in our prayer book. A generation later, Peter Abelard uh, suggested, no, it wasn't so much dying for our sins, it was rather to demonstrate the extent of God's love that he'd allow even his own son, his own flesh and blood, to die a miserable death. To convince us of how much God loves you and me. The fact of the matter is that this kind of discussion, whether it's from Kent Anselm or from uh, Peter Abelard, discussion of what's known as penal substitution, elevates crucifixion as redemptive. What happened on the cross is what saves you and me. Creech would argue, along with Howard Yoder and Denny Weaver, both from the Mennonite tradition, that it's the nonviolent resurrection that saves you and me. Bit of a quick story, part of my postdoctoral studies at the University of Oxford involved spending time uh, at both the most liberal of uh, college communities on the Oxford campus, Christ Church, and the most conservative, Wycliffe Hall, which is an evangelical Church of England seminary. And I had tutors at both places. 
So I got a little bit of both perspectives, progressive Christianity and very conservative Christianity. I remember getting into an argument with my tutor at Wycliffe Hall, the conservative one, and he looked at me and he said, Mark, the problem with you liberals is you're always up, you don't spend enough time on your knees at the foot of the cross. And I looked back at Andrew and said, the problem with you evangelicals is you never get off your knees and do Jesus' work. Okay? That's a bit what's going on at Yoder and Weaver are suggesting to us. It's that it is in the nonviolence of Jesus' resurrection that we see God's fullest portrait beginning to emerge. I love this quote from Brian McLaren and a good way to bring to closure uh, the formal part of this conversation. If Rome's motto is peace through the destruction of enemies, for Jesus the motto is peace through nonviolent justice, peace through the forgiveness of enemies, peace through reconciliation, peace through embrace and grace. Remember as you're reading scripture, as we're listening to those passages that seem to confound and confuse, that seem to proclaim a God of meanness, a God of anger, a God of hatred, that there's a larger purpose that God is pursuing, a better world that God is trying to accomplish. And just like our lives, that process, even for God, is messy. number of questions that are on the table for you uh, would like you to consider as part of table talk. Uh, if you're at a small table, you might want to come together uh, so you can talk uh, in some uh, greater detail. Uh, fairly straightforward. The first is, is God violent? If not, how do you reconcile the violence that we just talked about? And conversely, if you've come to the conclusion, different from this discussion, that God is violent, how do we embrace a gospel that's peaceful? Second, does scripture, as you understand it, differentiate between the violence that God perpetuates, that we read about in scripture, the violence that's done by national governments, uh, religious communities, or even the violence done by individuals? Or is violence all the same? Third question you might consider is, is our salvation dependent on the violence of Jesus' death, either as a penalty or as a substitute? If the violence perpetrated or sanctioned by God is intended to restore order and right the wrongs, that is to return us to this perfect cosmos, to what extent is it justified in addressing contemporary injustices? So when we see things in our own communities that are out of whack, when we witness 11 people being massacred in Pittsburgh, are we justified in using violence to respond as agents of restoring justice in a world gone amok? Okay. And the last question, as you think about it, does the gospel demand our pacifism? Yoder and Weaver would say yes. Does the God of justice demand rather violent confrontation when it's necessary. So those are on the papers at your table. Please engage in the conversation. There are also pens on the table, and I've got some pencils here. I'd appreciate any feedback you'd like to give uh, me. Uh, just write it down on the paper and leave it on the table, or bring it up to me after uh, 
the discussion. We'll use it to revise and update this curriculum before it's published uh, next spring by the University of the South. We'll reconvene in about uh, uh, 15 minutes. Thank you.